Well, good morning. I want to add my voice of thanks to the Lord for God's providence and his uh, protection of Mike this week. And you never know what a week may bring. And uh, just reminded of that. And um, so very grateful. Uh, the Lord's preserving kindness in his life. And, um, and I had a seminary professor who used to say, you need to always be ready to preach, pray, or die. <laughs> and for seminary students, that's uh, more applicable than for you necessarily. Some of you'd rather die than, than preach. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, just a, a sober reminder that how fragile our lives can be, and we just don't know, and yet God is so kind, so gracious to us to give us uh, more time with Mike, so we continue to pray for his recovery, and I'm just so thankful for just the many providences that have been recounted already in, in, in that situation. So, we're very thankful. Well, we turn our attention now to Luke chapter 7, yet again. And this story is so good. I mean, you have to love this story. Um, and it is um, one that is found only in Luke. It is unique to Luke's gospel. And so... Um, this is one of the benefits of studying Luke is we have some of these stories that in particular I just really love that are unique to Luke, and this is one of them. So let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, and I'll read the text for us. Soon afterwards, he went up to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the living God. Title for our message is Canceling a Funeral. And uh, in God's providence, I didn't know how, you know, appropriate that would be for this week <laughs> in the life of our church. I mean, in a very serious way. Uh, but here, Jesus actually cancels a funeral. Um, in this section, we are seeing Jesus' identity uh, put before us time and again. We, we mentioned last time that chapter 7 is somewhat of a new subsection in the Gospel of Luke where we are uh, seeing highlighted for us Jesus is moving towards the Gentiles in many ways, but also we're seeing uh, each of these instances that show us who he is, who is identity, and then what the response is to that identity. Here we see an incredible miracle. Uh, last time, Jesus uh, brought a man who was near death back to life. Uh, he hadn't died yet. He, he brought him, uh, restored him fully. Uh, here we see a man who has died and he is brought back. And in these miracles of Jesus, we learn a number of things. We've already made this point, but I'll reiterate it to you. Uh, there's a lot going on when Jesus is doing his miracles. Uh, we could say that Jesus is showing his compassion He's showing his compassion to those who are in need, uh, who are suffering the effects of sin in a fallen world. That is certainly true. He's also uh, showing the curse being reversed. He's turning back the curse upon the creation. And we see that in many different ways. And then we also see sort of a preview of coming attractions through these miracles. It is previews of the coming earthly kingdom of the Messiah uh, for our, from our perspective when he returns for his second coming. But we're seeing previews of that. We're seeing a, a taste of things to come. What will it look like when the kingdom is fully here? And, and so we're seeing that previewed in these miracles. 
And then we also see in all of that the credentials of Jesus. We see who is Jesus. It is revealing his identity to us. Who is this man? Who can do these things? Who is this man who has such compassion? Who is this man who can reverse the curse upon the creation? And who is this man who can bring the kingdom? Well, it's only one man. It is the second Adam. It is the new Moses. It is the new David. It is the prophet who fulfills the prophets. It is this one and more. He is the one who can bring these things about. And so, in our story, you can make an argument that all four of these purposes come together in this story. We do see Jesus' compassion explicitly stated. We do see here him reversing the curse as he, he takes a man who has died and he brings him back to life. He resuscitates him. And of course, this man is going to die again uh, before the, the final resurrection, but he is brought back to life. And then we see in that the kingdom previewed and the great prophet that Jesus is in this passage and then the credentials of Jesus showing that he is the greater prophet and he is God who has visited his people. See him for who he is. Now, all these things are, are going on in this passage but what is the main point? Like, why does Luke include this? What is he trying to do? Of course, we're going to see later in chapter nine, uh, uh, chapter eight, uh, the healing of another person who has died. And so, if you wanted to just say Jesus can raise the dead, wouldn't you just do it one time? Right? You could do that one time and make that point. But there's a lot of different times. Well, there's I think three uh, where Jesus brings people back from the dead, and maybe more that aren't recorded uh, in the Gospels. But what is Luke trying to do here? And I would venture to say and we're, we're going to prove this out, the, one of the main things Luke wants us to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. And we're going to see that you might say, well, how, how, how? I mean, know he says, pro, they talk about him as a prophet here, but what, what's really going on? And just wait for it. We'll get there. And um, it's glorious. It's great. Uh, and so we want to look at this passage in four movements here. Four, we could say four characteristics of Jesus' ministry that identify him as Lord. And Luke identifies him that way in uh, verse 13, when the Lord saw her. So we um, want to start and look at verses 11 to 13 and see that Jesus feels pity. Jesus feels pity or compassion, if you will. Verse one to, sorry, verses 11 to 13. Look at verse 11. Soon afterwards, obviously the prior story of the centurion and his servant. Jesus heals the centurion's servant who's on the verge of death, and that's right after the Sermon on the Mount slash the plain. And so this is all kind of happening in rapid succession here. Verse 11, soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now Luke tells us the name of the city, Nain, and that's significant. Uh, we'll see more on that later, but... Uh, Luke, he knows how to just say a region. You know, he's in this particular area, this region, the Galilee. Uh, so it's significant that he would tell us the particular place, the particular city, especially when it's not particularly that significant of a city. And this is the only time Nain is mentioned. Like, okay, that's significant. Only time Nain's mentioned. Uh, hold, just hold on to that. Let it be a pebble in your shoe for now. Why mention it here? He's going to show us. It's going it's to become evident. But let's just ask the basic questions of geography. Where is the city? Well, remember Jesus has been in Capernaum, right? He, he was in Capernaum. And then uh, this is south of Capernaum, about 25 miles. And in relation to Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, it's about six miles southeast of Nazareth. Uh, maybe you've heard of the, the Valley of Jezreel or the Plain of uh, Megiddo or Armageddon, right? You think of that battle happening there. It's this massive flat plain, and this is, this is within that region, okay? There's a mound uh, or a hill uh, of moray, and on the north side of that hill, oh, don't fall asleep on me. This is going to come back, all right? So on the north side, uh, geography, like this is where geography actually matters in the Bible. You know, it, it'll pay off, I promise. Uh, on the north side of this hill of moray is a town called Nain, okay? In the south side, there's a town called Shunem. And so Nain is on the north side of this, of this um, mound, and it's in this valley of uh, Jezreel. So just hold on to that, hang on to that. Uh, this is the town of Nain. You can go visit there today. Uh, 
Jesus is with his disciples, and many are following after him. And so, no doubt, Jesus has just got this entourage that he has his, his, his group, his disciples, but then just a huge crowd is following. And think about it, if, if, they, if any of them live in Capernaum, they've just been trekking with Jesus for over 20 miles to come down to this, this town of Nain. And so, uh, they, you know, they're just traveling along. I mean, I think you would too. I mean, if you could follow Jesus around, I mean, this is incredible. And so they're following him around. This is a, a massive crowd. And they run into another large crowd. These two crowds converge. Look at verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, kind of the main front of the town, and it says, behold, or look, wouldn't you know it, a man who had died was being carried out. So, so they come into town, and they don't know, what, what, you know what's happening there. They don't have a cell phone. They don't have news. They're just walking in. They're getting to the front of the town. And out of the town, there's a funeral procession. So they would bury their dead outside of the town. So he's coming into the town, and there's a group coming out of the town, a big group, many people from the town. And they're, they're carrying this man who has died. These two crowds are about to converge. You know, today, sometimes you're driving along the road and you're like, why is everyone stopped? Why aren't they going? And then you quickly get humbled as you see a police car go by and then you see a whole bunch of people going by with their flashers on and then another police car behind them and it's a funeral procession and you're like, oh, oh man. And so you respect that and you, you stop and you let it pass by. And, and this is a, an ancient uh, funeral procession. And Jesus is coming in, and they're coming out, and you think, okay, they stop and let it pass by. And they, they could have done that. And here we get some more detail about the, the, the people involved here. So there's a man who had died being carried out, in the middle of verse uh, 12, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Here's a sad scene indeed. This man being carried out on a pallet of sorts, this word in uh, Luke that we'll get to, uh, he's on the bier. Uh, it's like a coffin. It's more like a pallet of sorts. Don't think of like a, uh, a fancy coffin like we might have today, but just a pallet with this man's body laid upon it and maybe covered with a sheet. Um, they would bury people within a day, usually, um, within 24 hours and outside of the city. So, uh, that, that's what we have here. Um, that's not a super common word for us in English, the beer. Um, and, and so, but it's, it's the idea of a coffin. And so we learn about this man though, and it, it just makes our heart break for this woman. This woman has walked this path before, except on the pallet was her husband. And no doubt, maybe her, her son was with her, walking, taking her husband outside of the town. Now here she is again, making the same trek, except now it's her son. And, and you have to understand, during this time, she has not only lost her, it's, he says, her only son. It's actually the same phraseology as Jesus as being the only son, right? Uh, and, and so this is the only support this woman has. And this time, she... She can't just go back to work. She can't just, you know, she doesn't have a 401k. You know, there's not, she didn't have life insurance on her son. Like, none of that. She, she is destitute. So not only is she saddened, but her life in many ways is one of destitution now. One writer said, her life has ended, though her existence continued. And there's just such sorrow in this story. The loss of an only son, a mother bearing her son, but only after burying her husband. Lots of sorrow in this woman's life. And many from this town are, are weeping with her in this procession. And there's this bitter sadness. And actually, this very situation in the Old Testament is proverbial. Uh, the mourning for one's only son it comes up a number of times. Jeremiah chapter 6, and this is how bad it is. It becomes like a statement. Jeremiah 6 verse 26 says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. This is evidence that you're mourning greatly. And make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation. For suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. Prophet Amos 
Amos chapter 8, verse 10. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And then in Zechariah, Zechariah, this is actually a very significant passage related to Israel's future conversion when they look upon the Messiah. And it says this of Israel's future regeneration in Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so here is this woman's sorrow and sadness and, and the Old Testament just makes uh, this into a, a statement of, of just the ultimate sorrow, the loss of, of an only son. What a sad situation Jesus steps into. Yet consider the providence of God in all of this. Think, if Jesus shows up one day later, this guy's already buried. If, God, if Jesus shows up one day earlier, this guy's still alive. But God orchestrates every detail here in this woman's life, and in your life, right? Nothing happens by accident. Um, sometimes we'll say like, oh man, that was a God thing. You know, it's like, like everything, is like, was everything else not a God thing? You know, now, I know what we mean by that. Like this story, if anything, is a God thing, right? It's like very clearly God alone can do this. But even him walking in at this very moment, just see the providence of God in this. A massive crowd walking in. They don't have synchronized watches. Oh yeah, the funeral's at this time. They don't know that. And they're walking out, and here they meet. A providential encounter. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her. Stop there. Don't you just love this? There's a massive crowd behind Jesus. A ma probably a massive crowd in front of Jesus. And here he zeroes in on her. He sees her. Now maybe she's leading the processional, likely, or close to the bier. And he sees her. I mean, don't you just love? Uh, Jesus sees people in their affliction, in their sorrow. He's aware. He sees her. And he had compassion on her. He had compassion on her. Evidently, Jesus walks up to this woman in the midst of the processional to speak to her. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I, this is how my mind works. The disciples at this moment, they're with Jesus and they're like, okay. I mean, I don't know what the protocol was at this time, but... Um, you just let them pass by. You just, you don't know the situation. And here Jesus just starts walking into the situation and they're going, like, wait, what do we do? You know, like, uh, and it's just like the ultimate awkwardness, you know, what, what is he doing? And he walks right up to her, interrupts the whole thing, and he begins to speak to her. But what, what brings him to that? It is his compassion. What would br bring Jesus to interrupt a funeral procession? He feels for her. He has compassion. He has pity upon her. Now, here's where it's so helpful to see the last story and this story together. Because that man went out of his way to seek out Jesus' help in a desperate situation. This story has a lot of contrast with that one. This woman has not asked for Jesus' help. This woman doesn't even know Jesus is in the vicinity until he walks in. And so Jesus here is taking the initiative without being requested to do anything here. There's nothing said about this woman's faith. There's nothing said about the dead man's faith, obviously, because he's dead. Um, but uh, so there's nothing here about, oh, they, they believed and God did this for them. So that blows up that whole idea that you have to have enough faith or something for Jesus to act on your behalf. Um, here, he's just drawn into the situation. He has compassion upon her. His compassion moves him. Now, this word for compassion is, is, I love it. It's like one of my favorite words in Greek. It, it speaks of like your bowels. It even sounds like it. It's splagnizomai, uh, right? Splagnizomai. It, it's like splunkna. Like, that's like, it's like your guts. I mean, it sounds like guts. <laughs> it's like, it's just this nasty word, you know? But it's like deep down. It's, it's you feeling something in your guts, deep down inside. And that's what Jesus is experiencing here. He has this compassion upon your, this deep-seated feeling 
Of course, God is a God of loving kindness and mercy and grace. And here Jesus expresses in a very human way his compassion as he sees her desperate situation. And then he speaks to her. And he says to her, do not weep. Do not weep. And the word Luke uses here to convey this idea of weeping, I mean, crying may be better, but they're very similar. The idea, though, to get is she's currently crying. Like, as Jesus says this to her, she is uh, shedding tears. They are falling down her face. And he says to her, do not weep. Now, a little bit of etiquette for uh, ministering to those who have lost a loved one. You don't tell them not to weep, right? This is like the this is like ABCs. Of course they should weep. Of course it, the Bible. I mean, Jesus is going to weep at the death of Lazarus. It's not wrong to weep. And so, just on the surface, if you didn't know who Jesus was or what he was going to do, and you're just standing next to this woman as a support to her, and this guy walks up, interrupts, and says, do not weep. I mean, what is that? Who are you to say that to her? Unless you're about to bring her son back from the dead. Then she would not have a reason to weep any longer. And so just the way Luke tells this story is so good. She has good reason to cry, but not for very long. And this just reminds us that when Jesus turns back the curse in the kingdom, he will wipe away every tear. I mean, don't you remember Revelation 21, 4? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. They've passed away. Jesus draws near to her because of his compassion for her. And isn't that true for us as well? When we imitate this compassion of the Lord, our hearts go out to someone and we enter into their sorrow and we are drawn to them. Now, what's even more amazing about this is that's what we do for those who are close to us. Uh, Jesus has never met this woman. She's a stranger, but he sees her plight and his heart goes out to her and he's drawn into the situation to minister to her. So here we see Jesus feeling pity. Jesus feels pity. What a savior. Secondly, we see Jesus' future power. Jesus' future power. Verses 14 and 15. And once again, we see this contrast as we pointed out from the prior story. Jesus begins working unasked by this woman. Verse 14 Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still. I mean, Paul bearers, what do you do? I mean, this guy comes up and just random, puts his hand on it. That's super offensive. I mean, you get, become unclean in Jewish law, ceremonially for a week. And they're just like, uh, we weren't told what to do at this part. Like, what, what do we do here? We just know we're supposed to get there. What do we do? There's no playbook here. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. This is incredible. Now, we, we, we point out, let's just jump back a little bit. This, this defiling uh, by touching the beer because you're coming in contact with a dead person, a dead body, and, and, and the, the thing that he's laying upon. Um, Numbers chapter 19 speaks about this. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. This is not like you haven't committed a sin, so to speak, but this is like a ceremonial uncleanness and you have to deal with it for Israel. Verse 16, uh, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or has died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. This is part of God's teaching of Israel. And, and we talked about that with a, with a leper as well. And of course, you remember, Jesus has already touched a leper. 
which is like very much in the same category. But instead of him becoming unclean, he transfers his cleanness to the man. It's, it works opposite. And so he reverses uh, the situation. And so it is here. He doesn't become unclean by touching the beer and this man. The man comes alive and he becomes clean. And just once again, we see this incredible power on Jesus' part here. He is one undefiled by sinners. And he speaks to this dead man. Sometimes at funerals, people will speak to the dead person as if they are there. Um, and that person's not there. And so it's not really appropriate to do that. But here Jesus does it because he's bringing the man back. He's bringing him back here. And once again, connection to the last story. What was it that that man said? He believed about Jesus, that Jesus' words were authoritative. Like, you don't even need to come into my house. You don't even need to talk to me. You don't need to see my servant. You just need to say the word. I'm a man under authority. I get authority. I say, do this. They do it. I say, do that. Do that. You just say the words. And that's the issue here. The authority and power of Jesus' words, not just to bring a man on the verge of death back to life, but to bring a man dead back to life. And I love how Luke writes this. I mean, how do you communicate this? The dead man sat up and began to speak. The dead man sat up and began to speak. I mean, this is not something dead men do. How else is Luke going to communicate it? I mean, he's like, he was dead, but he's alive now. He was dead, but when did he become alive? And the dead man sat up. I mean, this is incredible. He began to speak. And you think, what did he say? <laughs> I mean, don't you want to know that? I mean, people love like their kids' first words, you know. Oh, what was my first words, mom? You know, what was, your, what was this guy's first words when, when he got up? We don't know. Jesus then gave him to his mother. How tender, how sweet. And she passes him back off to his mother. Notice how, how immediate all of this is. I mean, Jesus just speaks the command to him. The man immediately obeys. He immediately sits up. He immediately begins speaking. I mean, it is like nothing happened. He's like a soldier coming to attention, right? And Jesus is like the drill sergeant, you know, soldier. He's like, yes, sir. <laughs> and he just sits up at attention and, and speaks. I mean, that's, that's the situation here. Jesus is powerful words, authoritative words. Now, Jesus is going to raise more people from the dead. Um, here's the first one recorded. I'll just jump ahead to chapter 7, verse 22. This is uh, Jesus sending message back to John the Baptist to give him further assurance. He answered, answered them, the messengers of John, go and tell John what you have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The dead are raised up. So Jesus is doing this more than once. We just have a, a few of them recorded in the Gospels. And here we see this preview of the kingdom. Jesus brings resurrection at his coming. And this is the power that Jesus will exert in the future at what we call the rapture, which is really the resurrection. Uh, 1 Thessalonians gives us a description of this event. We read it recently, of course, in our scripture readings some weeks ago, but listen to this incredible power that according to 1 Corinthians 15 happens in the twinkling of an eye. It's like instantly, just like this man was brought back to life instantly. Verse 13 of chapter four. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep and he means like those who have, who have died in Christ, they look like they're sleeping, but God's gonna bring them back. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Doesn't that sound familiar? The cry of command. 
with the voice of an archangel and with the voice uh, and, and with the sound of a trumpet of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord therefore encourage one another with these words I love this passage so good such a comfort such an encouragement to know what is next on the calendar, so to speak. You know, what is to happen next? The return of Christ, we say, is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. And this is like the, the firing gun, right? When a big race is about to happen, you, you, everyone lines up, and then you go, and everyone starts. This event in First Thessalonians 4 is that event that is like the gun that starts off all the climactic events that we call the second coming. Just like Jesus' first coming had a lot of events around it. It wasn't just like one day. But so Christ's second coming is a, is a, a, is a host of events that, yes, culminates in his stepping foot on the Mount of Olives, but this is the kickoff that begins the day of the Lord and all these things, and, and it's the, the rapture here. It is the resurrection. This is what we are looking forward to as believers in the church. For our body is to be transformed. I mean, we don't want to die. We want to be just changed instantly. But those who have died, we have this great hope that when Jesus comes to return, he gives that command, the bodies come out. And you say, you know, why doesn't he do that now? Well, God is writing a story, and it's not time yet. But here, he gives you a glimpse, a picture, a preview of what is coming to give you hope that this is, this is exactly what's happening. He will do it. He can do it. And so it's certain uh, it, it reminds me of Philippians chapter 3, which verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This power, this powerful word where he speaks and it happens. And so here's a sample of that power, that future power that will be unleashed to bring those who have died back to life and to transform those who are living at that time. The story is not a promise that Jesus will keep you from death or bring you back now, but shows a preview of the coming kingdom. This is what Jesus will do. Jesus' future power, what an encouragement. And, you know, sometimes we read about these things and we think, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. This is real, though. This is like, Jesus really rose this man from the dead as a foretaste, as a sample to say, this happened in space-time history to give you a down payment, an assurance that, yeah, he's gonna do it on a massive scale in the future. This is our hope. This is where we find encouragement and comfort. So Jesus' future power Notice third, Jesus' fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus' fulfillment of the prophets. Verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Notice the reaction. Word is going to start spreading fast. You know, the people up front can see what's happening and they're just like, what happened? What happened? I didn't see it. <laughs> and they're just passing the word around. This is incredible. They, they are fearing and glorifying God. I mean, this is the response to divine activity. Fear of God, glorifying God. This is the appropriate response to Jesus' person, of who he is, his identity. But notice what they say about Jesus. And this is significant. For this place, this time, they say a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Why would they say Jesus is a great prophet for doing this miracle? Maybe you think, well, don't prophets usually speak? Isn't that their normal thing? I know they do miracles, but the people have made a connection that Luke wants us to make as well. Luke wants his readers to hear an echo of something that's so similar and yet somewhat different. One commentator said, Luke is trying to trigger a memory in his readers. So what about this story should trigger a memory for these people and for us? Well, let's start this way. Who are the only other two individuals in the Old Testament, who bring people back from the dead. 
They start with an E. Elijah and Elisha, right? And they were prophets during the time of the kings. In first and second kings. Now, think about Luke, okay? Luke is trying to trigger this memory. And so, think of, he talks about a widow here. When is the last time Luke talked about a widow? Chapter 4. And in what context? Well, go back. Chapter 4, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. And they're not receiving him. They're rejecting him. And so Jesus thinks about another time when Israel is rejecting God as their king. And so he tells some stories to stick it to them <laughs> and convict them. And in verse 24 of Luke 4, he says, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. So he talks about a prophet. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows, there it is, in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And then he says, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And of course, the response is fury and anger and wrath. They try to push Jesus off the cliff because they know what he's saying to them. Hey, yeah, Israel was suffering pretty bad. But guess what? God didn't go to them. He went to other people. He went to Gentile places to, to show God's kindness. Now, remember, what is Luke doing? In the, we're going to see this more and more in the, in the weeks to follow, seven and eight. He's showing Jesus start to go to the Gentile places. And so what is he going to do? He's going to do some of the things that Elijah and Elisha did when they were going to Gentile places as well. And so he's already made a connection with a widow, with Elijah and Elisha, with the prophets. The people make this connection, but there's more than that. Now consider the similarity to this story in 1 Kings. So go back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. All right, so you know 1 Kings 18. That's like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This is just before that. And Elijah kind of comes out of nowhere <laughs> during this time. And um, the widow of Zarephath, which we just read about in Luke 4, is in verses 8 to 16. And then, wouldn't you know it, the next story about Elijah is about a widow's son who gets raised. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to Yahweh, O Yahweh my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to Yahweh, O Yahweh my God, let the child's life come into him again. And Yahweh listened to the voice of Elijah and, he, and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. That's the exact wording in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Luke chapter 7. He gave him to his mother. It's a clear uh, uh, linguistic connection. Luke is trying to draw an echo for you and, and trigger this memory. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And here's her response. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh is in your, in, in your mouth is truth, right? It's a confirmatory miracle. So that's one, right? And that, that's definitely a triggered memory. But I think there's an even more close memory that the people of Nain would think about. They would no doubt think about this. But if go to 2 Kings, go to 2 Kings chapter 4, and this is the ministry of Elisha. So Elisha follows Elijah. And, and Elisha is doing a lot of the same kinds of miracles that Elijah did. And here is one of them. And you have the widow's oil that keeps coming, 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 God's providing. And then in, uh, read this little bit longer section here uh, to make this point. 
2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. And, and this story, this is fascinating, this story is right before the story of Naaman the Syrian and his leprosy being cleansed. That comes in 2 Kings chapter 5. So remember Luke 4 mentions both of those instances and they're very close to each other in the narratives. And so here, let's pick it up in verse 8, 2 Kings 4, verse 8. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put, that, put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So make a guest room for him. Verse 11, one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, a servant, call the Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? So he's saying, hey, I want to do something. I want to bless you. Here's the prophet uh, wanting to give a blessing to her. She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went, up, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him up, or when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon or Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she sent out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, a servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? So notice here, he doesn't know what's happened. Here's the prophet, and he doesn't know what's happened with this woman. So he says, hey, find out what's going on. Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And you're like, wait, why did she say that? Verse 27, and when, he, when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She's like, I didn't even ask for this. I didn't ask for a child. I didn't want to bring on this sorrow. He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. So <laughs> Elisha says, hey, take my staff, lay it on the child's body. And he's hoping like, hey, he's going to come back to life. It doesn't work. So he's got to go back again and tell Elisha. And so now Elisha's got to come. Verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. And you got to love this. Just get ready, okay? It's going to get weird. All right. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to Yahweh. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. So, so he does this twice. He's like, puts himself fully down on the child. And then he gets up, walks around, does it again. And then here's what happens. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. 
Then she picked up her son and went out. <laughs> this is incredible. Now, Charlie wanted me to tell you this, but we, when, when Charlie was really little, we, I'd read these stories to them and stuff, and we, we would act them out and stuff. So we acted this one out, and Charlie, we got this great video we found just recently, actually, and Charlie's like, my head, my head, and he falls on the ground, and then I laid on him, and, and got up and laid on him, and then he's like, achoo, 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 and he's like sneezing seven times. It's like, this is a fun story to act out with your kids. Um, what is going on here? <laughs> he sends a staff. It doesn't work. He's got to come. He lays on him. It doesn't work. So he gets up, walks around, lays on him again, prays. And then the child sneezes seven times. Like, what? what's going on here? <laughs> and why would they be more prone to make this connection with Elisha? Well, there's a detail. I wonder if you picked up on it in 2 Kings 4. Where is this woman from? She's a Shunammite, and she's from Shunam. Now, I mentioned it, but I think it, I think it went over your heads. Remember the hill of Moreh? On the north is Nain. Remember? N for Nain, N for north, right? And on the south of this mound is Shunem, S for Shunem, S for south, okay? North and south. And guess how far apart they are? About two miles. They're about two miles from each other. So... In Elisha's day, Shunem gets the miracle of this child being raised from the dead by the prophet. And Nain got nothing, right? You walk into Shunem, and there's a big sign in the historical district that says, Shunem, title town. <laughs> and, uh, and they got the title of Elisha and Nain. They get nothing until now. And now they get something. And so I, I like to think that as they're saying, a great prophet has risen among us. I mean, they're, they're yelling this out. They want Shunem to hear it. Like, hey, we got it now. <laughs> you got nothing. <laughs> and so this is no doubt the connection that they're making here to Elijah, to Elisha. But did you notice the differences? Yes, lots of similarities. But Elijah and Elisha, they both have to pray. Uh, uh, Elijah has to lay on the child, get up and, and do it again. Uh, Elisha has to Send his staff, doesn't work. He has to go, he has to lay on him. Uh, then he gets up, walks around, lay on him again. And then the child, even when he comes back, he sings this seven times. And you're like, what, what is going on here? But the difference is, Jesus doesn't pray. Jesus doesn't lay on him. He just speaks and says, get up. And the boy doesn't sneeze. No sneezing required for this healing. He just sits up and starts talking. Like nothing happened. And so there's meant to be a contrast as well as a connection to these two miracles. And, and it's to show that, yes, there is a, a continuity. There's a connection to these prophets. But this man is different than these prophets. He's a great prophet. He is better than Elijah and Elisha. He simply speaks the word and it immediately happens because he doesn't just have the power of God. He is the power of God. He is God. And that's what leads to the second statement. God has visited his people. God has visited his people. They get it. This is, this is a phrase that comes up at different key pivotal moments in Israel's history where it says God has visited his people. It's talked about in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter four. It's in Ruth chapter one when God visits his people uh, after a famine in the land. And that's a pivotal point in history as God is going to bring about the birth of uh, David's grandfather and move his plan along. It comes up in uh, Hannah's giving birth in 1 Samuel 2. God visited his people. And then in Luke chapter 1, we're skipping over a bunch of others, but in Luke chapter 1, verse, this is at the birth of Jesus. In Luke 1, verse 68, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that, he should, we, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. And then jump down to verse 78. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So you see all these things coming together. God's compassion, his visiting his people. What they recognize is the messianic era has begun. It has started, it has dawned. And this is the very evidence that will be given to John the Baptist in the next section. John is wanting some further assurance as he's in prison. And so he says, hey, tell John. And John's got like a checklist, the messianic checklist. Okay, this healing the blind, check. <laughs> you know, raising the dead, check. 
Check, check. And he's checking it out. And Jesus is saying, the dead are raised. The dead are raised. It's happening. It's happening, John. The Messianic era is dawning. And they get it. They fear God. They glorify God. He's giving a preview of kingdom attractions which show that he is the prophet to come and one who's going to bring the kingdom. One writer said, Jesus' ministry both replicates and exceeds that of Israel's ancient prophets. And so who is this man? And Luke, in verse 13, says he's the Lord. And we pass over that because we hear the Lord all the time. This is the first time Luke himself uses the word Lord. Now Jesus says it, Lord, Lord, right? But that's not Luke. That's Luke recording what Jesus said. Here Luke says for the first time, Lord. And he recognizes him as such. And Luke applies this term for Jesus before the resurrection, showing the identity of Jesus. He is the, yes, the great prophet who visits people. He is the fulfillment of the prophets, but he is the fullness of God as well, who's visited people to bring about the next stage of redemptive history, the next step in God's plans to bring us back to Eden. And so what happens after this? Well, Jesus' fame is publicized. Jesus' fame is publicized in verse 17. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Of course it did. I mean, if you got a story like this, you win every time, right? Everyone starts to tell their stories. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, I got a better one. (laughs) This is crazy. I was there, you know. And they start to spread it like like it's been happening before. Elijah and Elisha went to the Gentiles during a time of Israel's sinfulness and rejection. Now Jesus is beginning to do that. And he'll continue to do it in this section. Who is this man? He's the God-man who is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the prophet Moses said to look out for. The one who will bring the next stage of God's redemptive plan. And he is more than a prophet. He is the Lord. He is God who has visited his people. And so, do you know him this way? Oh, if you know him this way, as Lord, as God, by faith, then his pity and compassion is so sweet to you to know. And the previews that he gives are a hope and a comfort of what he's going to do in the future. And his power assures you that he can reverse the curse. He can bring about all of his promises. They're all yes and amen in him. And as we wait, we wait with the expectation and hope of these these tastes, these samples that he's given us to know it's all true, it's all real, it's all in him, and he's gonna make it all happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the assurances you give us in your word time and again, passage after passage, the incredible, amazing Lord Jesus who, who we see in this passage showing such great compassion that we would want to emulate. He, he shows the power of God He shows us that your plans are right on track. That you don't intend to to spiritually restore things alone, but physically restore things as well. And to bring all things back into order for us to glorify you on this earth. We thank you, Lord. Thrill our hearts with the person and the work of Christ. Have a newfound affection for him in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.